In the following live session recording, Tim Cool, Chief Solutions Officer for Cool Solutions Group in Charlotte, North Carolina, discusses why church buildings matter. The church campus and facilities tell a story. Tim Cool offers a unique perspective on the importance of church buildings. We cannot neglect the power of story and how our church facilities communicate a story. In this session, the listener will learn several key questions about church facilities, such as how does church space support the story of the people? How does the church space benefit the hearts, minds, and emotions of your guests? And how does your facility bring people into the story of the church? Let's join Tim now. So one of the groundworks as we get started here, and I shared this yesterday with the group that was, that was here. Thanks, Steve, for coming. Um, my audience of one. Yeah. Um, is I, I'm a firm believer that everything on earth belongs to God. Everything. So our houses, the chairs that you're sitting on, the cars you drove, and all of that belongs to God. And so because of that, there's a stewardship component. Uh, I grew up in a pastor's home, and, and stewardship always meant money. Steward, we're doing a, cap, a stewardship campaign to raise money and so on and so forth. The reality is stewardship is really only taking care of somebody else's stuff, being responsible for somebody else's stuff. And so I'm a firm believer in, in a term we've dubbed as being facility stewardship. And there's four components of facility stewardship. None of this is on the slide. This, this is free. Um, the first is, how do we properly plan our buildings to fulfill our ministry objectives? The second is, how do we utilize our buildings for maximum utilization? NFL, next to the NFL, we're the worst user of, of facilities. You think of what... Um, Arthur Blank spent on the Mercedes-Benz for eight home games a year. Yeah, now he's gonna rent it out for other stuff, but in essence, it's eight home games a year. We do the same thing. We spend millions of dollars on buildings to use them a few hours a week. The third part of facility stewardship is how do we maintain and manage our facility? And the fourth is how do we then plan for the long-term inevitable costs it's gonna to take to keep our buildings going? So we're going to, this morning, in this workshop, we're going to work a little bit more on, or focus a little bit more on the first couple pieces. Uh, as Alan already said, I'm the husband of one wife of 35 years, and 22-year-old triplets, 23 and a week and a half. Um, so I've written my last college tuition check, written the last rent check. They are on their own. And, and there may be a pay raise somewhere in the future. So a... A few years ago, I, I wrote a book called Why Church Buildings Matter. And um, Sam Rayner, Tom Rayner's son, was my publisher on it. And uh, what convicted me, because I'm a firm believer, and we all need to agree on this, otherwise you need to leave the room, is that no one, a facility will never save a soul. It's only a tool. But we sometimes forget that having the right tool to get a job done will help you be more efficient. It's like going in and needing to drive a, um, a nail and you grab a screwdriver. Well, you can probably get the job done by beating the snot out of that thing with the handle, but it'd be a lot more efficient to have a hammer and do it one time. Same thing with our church facilities. So the reason I believe uh, church buildings matter is because people matter which is why we can't start with the building. 
So I'm going to take you down a journey for the, for the first, oh, uh, three hours of our time together. Uh, I had till, what, five? Is that? Okay. Um, but for but for the first <laughs> but for the first 15 20 minutes I want to take you down a path of why it's important and kind of a history to get us to what we're going to talk about in a little bit. So in my opinion, when I think of how a building matters, it's got to start first and foremost with a clear vision. If you don't have a clear vision of ministry, then you shouldn't be talking about buildings. That has got to be first. So until that's done, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Stay and focus on that. From the vision is what kind of story does the, the facility communicate? And we're gonna look at that in a little bit more detail here in a few minutes. That then leads to what's the right tool that we're gonna have? Then what's the best utilization of that tool? Uh, it, it burns me when I see churches that, that, ha that have lots of facilities that are either dark seven days a week, like, like you guys have experienced, or in major parts of the week, it's, it's dark. Man, with the, with the cost of land and construction today, to not utilize the tools God's entrusted to us to its full is not being a very good steward, in my opinion. So can we all agree that things change? Okay. I didn't see any hitching posts for, for any horses out in the parking lot. Um, I didn't see any buggies. Now, if we've been in part of Ohio or Pennsylvania, we might have seen some buggies and whatnot, but not, not in this part of, of Georgia. So let's look at a couple of things that have changed. In 1986, this was my first car phone. Not cell phone, car phone. It had a stick in the middle. It was permanently mounted in the car. It had a dangly microphone that had a cord that wove down to it, and then it had a speaker sitting underneath of it. But back then, I spent $1,000 on that in 1986 because it was new, new, cool, and shiny, and everyone should have one, right? But I worked predominantly South Carolina in that time, and anytime I got off the interstate, it didn't work. There was no cell service, so I still had to carry a bag of quarters to find payphones. Do you all remember what a payphone is? You know, put, put money in the payphone. The only thing that this thing could do is it could make calls, it could receive calls, and it had that cool spirally antenna. So I had a blue Caprice Classic, the bubble, with that antenna. So it looked like a cop car. So that was kind of cool. But now you think about these devices, okay, and what you can do with these. I get frustrated when I go to a church, and frankly, I'm a little frustrated here because they don't have very good cell service. But if I can't read my Bible from this, I get frustrated. I do all my devotions on you version. You know, I, I use this for my devotions and my readings and, and whatnot. When I can't do that when I'm at a church service somewhere, it just frustrates me. That's what we've gotten used to. You know, in, in these devices, this device has only been around for 12 years. I mean, the first iPhone came out 12 years ago. So think of, think of where we have come from the car phone or the bag phone. How many of you had a bag phone? Okay. Uh, that was the next generation up. That made it almost mobile. Um, but you, you think of all the things now that you can do with these devices. In that same year, in 1986, I bought my first computer. It was an IBM PC Junior. It had enough memory for one Word document to be saved. I mean, it was like 
500K memory. Now you look at what we can do with, with laptops and, and the power they have behind them. Uh, I can run my entire business from this laptop anywhere I'm at. I don't, I don't have to have a big mainframe and stuff. So that's changed. Think about offerings, how we do offerings. Um, my, it, it's just amazing. The church I attend in Charlotte, 90% of our giving is online. National average is about 25% to 30%. Um, but it's not, it's not, people say, well, that's generational. Maybe a little bit, but my dad, before he passed away last year at age 90, he did all of his bills online, he did all of his giving online, he did everything he did online because he couldn't get out of the house much. So he was somewhat forced to it. But it's, it's not an age thing. It's, it's more of a mindset. Or even how we do churches. When I, when I think of um, the hymnal up there, that's what I grew up with. Then we grew up with Bill Gaither, you know, shortly thereafter. Well, my son, uh, about two years ago, had gone to a Sunday night service at a, a Presbyterian church where he had a friend his age who was preaching that Sunday. So he wanted to go to support his friend. He called me afterwards. He goes, Dad, they sang out of books. <laughs> my son had never seen a hymnal before. And so he was just amazed that they would sing out of books. You know, so again, you think of how things have changed culturally. You know, how many churches do we see now that are in shopping centers? They're in, you know, business parks. Uh, you look at the uh, Buckhead Church of North Point being in the middle of a, a high rent, you know, business district. There's more of that kind of thing happening. So how we do it is, is very unique. So look at your hands for a moment. Look at your fingers. Then look at the person next to you or close to you. Now don't hold their hand. That would be just awkward. But are your hands exactly like theirs? So God created this unique thing called DNA. Every one of us is unique. So I, I, had, to, I had the privilege of sitting in on a jury about six years ago. And it was a uh, sexual ass assault case. We were in the jury box for six days. And at the end, the prosecutor came up and, and asked the CSI, so what is the likelihood of the blood from the defendant being somebody else's that was the blood found at the crime scene? They said one, in, one out of six trillion. Then they said, okay, so how many people are there on the earth? Well, there's only seven billion, so we're talking multiple solar systems to, to have the exact same DNA. So it's unique. We all have a uniqueness to each other. Our churches are the same way. Our churches have a DNA. And the DNA is made up basically by three components. People, place, and passion. So the people that go to your church have a uniqueness compared to the people that go to the church. And I didn't say that they were odd. They're unique. So there's something about them that make up your congregational makeup. Same thing with your place. You are in a certain portion of Georgia, in a certain town, on a certain street that has impact. I assure you the way a church does ministry downtown Atlanta is different than Anchorage, Alaska. It's different than Miami Beach. So your place impacts that. The third is your passion. What are you passionate, what are your leaders passionate about? It's gonna be different than other churches. Where all of those intersect, that makes up your church. Because you can find churches with similar people, you may have relatives, 
that go to a church in the same town, but their passion's totally different. So understanding what is it that drives your church from a passion standpoint, a place standpoint, and the people will help you focus and be more intentional on how you want to do ministry. So I'm going to walk you through the evolution of culture, economies, and storytelling, which will get us to then how our buildings have evolved over time. So let's say that I could go downtown Jonesboro, and I could find someone to sell me enough unroasted, unprocessed coffee beans to make one cup of coffee. How much would I have to spend? They want to venture a guess? Okay, I'll help you. It's about five cents. Okay, it's not much at all. So we could, I can make a cup of coffee for five cents. As long as I've got a grinder and my own roaster and my own hot water and everything else, I can make my own for pretty cheap. Well, then came along the industrial age where we started saying, hey, if we can mass produce stuff, we can, we can basically get the same quality, same price, any place we go in the world. So you have companies like Maxwell House and Folgers that, that came out with coffee. Now, just so we're clear, Folgers Crystals is not coffee. It's a dark, warm substance in a mug. It's not coffee. So just to be clear. So if I bought a can of Folgers real coffee, how much would I spend to make one cup of coffee? 50 cents. 50 cents? It's about 20 to 25 cents to make one, one cup of coffee out of that big can. You know, I, buy, I buy the big can. Um, so why am, I, why am I willing to spend four to five times as much for the same cup of coffee? It's convenience. It's, I don't have to grind it. Someone else has already roasted it. So I'm willing to pay a little bit more for it. Well, then comes along the convenience era. So what, is it, what does it cost in this area to go to 7-Eleven and get a big gulp of coffee in the morning? Buck 50, yep. So, okay, I've gone from five cents to 25 cents to a buck 50. Why, why am I willing to spend, again, another five, 10, 15 percent, you know, times more to do that? It's the convenience. Now I'm using their hot water, their cup, I'm using, their condiments to go with it, so all of a sudden, okay, it's, it's worth more value. But do they want you to hang around? Matter of fact, there's several chains across the country called Get and Go. They want you to get it and get out. They don't want you to hang around. They don't want you to do life with other people there in the store. Matter of fact, if you do, they think you're weird and they, they will ask you to leave. Well, then came along a, a man from Seattle who went on a drug-induced uh, tour of Europe to look at all the coffee shops over there. Along comes Starbucks. So I cannot tell you that a grande non-fat extra hot caramel macchiato costs $4.50, because obviously I've never ordered one. <laughs> but if I had ordered one, why am I gonna spend now three times as much as the big gulp I can get it? What, what has changed? Well, it's the experience. There's, there's, there's eclectic music. They have different uh, kind of seating. So they've got soft seating. They've got high top seating. They've got low top seating. I can kind of sit wherever I want. Um, I can see some really interesting people. I can grab a snack. Um, pardon? Wi-Fi. 
It's the cheapest rent I pay all day. Yeah. I can go there all day long and they never ask me to leave. So for my $4.50, I get my coffee and I get free Wi-Fi all day long. Take it to information off of Yeah. <laughs> the, um, so that, that has changed a lot of, of um, how we view and experience. They know that the experience is going to get you coming back. There's also a little aura of, well, I'm getting the good stuff, you know, kind of thing. Whether you like the taste of it or not, the, there's the perception that it's better coffee. Well, one of the things that we've seen is a shift towards a new buying decision. So in an experience type environment, who's the experience for? It's for me. I mean, Starbucks is, yes, making a profit, and probably a very nice profit at $4.50 for coffee. But the experience, everything they're doing is to make me feel comfortable, make me feel welcome and at home. What we're seeing, particularly with millennials, is moving more to a transformational economy, where their buying decisions are being driven by how they can transform the world. Has anybody ever bought a pair of Tom's shoes? Okay, why would you buy a pair of Tom's shoes? Primary reason. Because I give Exactly. You buy it since day one, you buy a pair of Tom's shoes, they give a pair to a third world child. One of the fastest growing segments on the internet right now are companies that are the buy one, give one. Or I bought a pair of um, Obez hiking shoes the other day. And on their box, they say, for every pair of shoes that are sold, we plant a tree. It's that give back mentality, and all of these companies are doing it. So how does this relate to facilities? So let's, let's talk about that. Now, I'm going to, we're gonna talk about the, the whole idea of storytelling because all facilities tell a story. When you leave today and you're driving home, just look at the buildings, not church buildings, buildings, and what do they immediately say to you? What, what story is in your mind as you go by each of those buildings? You, you, a story will happen in your mind whether you realize it or not. How old they are, whether or not they're thriving, whether or not they're not thriving. Uh, is it a place that I'd want to go visit? Is it not a place I'd want to go visit? All those things happen. Whether you intend it to communicate a story or not, it's going to communicate a story. So I'm going to show you some pictures of some church buildings. A couple of disclaimers. There's nothing rude, crude, or insensitive. Second is I am not showing these to disparage any of them. Okay, I just want to make a point. So I'm going to show you these images, and I want you to tell me the first thing that comes to mind. And, okay, this is the participatory part. You need to actually speak this time. So let's look at the first one. What comes to mind? Boring. Boring. Typical. Typical. Church I grew up in. Okay. It's, it's, it didn't take you all very long to come up with a story that this told you in your mind. How about this one? Cheap. Cheap? Yeah, the, the refab. Refab. Yeah. You know, again, as you're looking at these pictures, assume that you're brand new to the community, driving by these at 25 miles an hour, and you see it. What, what's, again, your first thoughts? Now, this one, while I don't find the architecture very attractive, there's a redeeming factor. 
apparently this was a different, there's a roll-up yeah. door. Yeah. This was obviously used for something else, which means they've redeemed that space for, for sacred purposes, which to me gives it a bonus. Okay, how about this? Old? Gothic. Gothic. I, I think they probably used liturgy of some sort. Mm -hmm. like I think, I, the minute I see that, I think downtown, and I think yeah. you have no parking. Those, those are the things that come to my mind. Yeah. High church. High church, mm -hmm. yep. How about this? My first thought is they've got more money than brains. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. Yeah. To me, they have this very nice old building that they built this yeah. chapel on the side like a pimple. And I'm like, yeah, this just didn't make any sense to me. So I, then I saw it just scratched my head. What does this say? Traditional. It's first something. It's first Baptist, first Methodist, first Presbyterian. It's first something. When I see that, the first thing I think of is hymnals and choir robes. I was a music major in college, so those kind of things immediately jump out at me. And so, but again, it communicates an instant story to me. Pardon? It looks like a mosque. Yeah. I mean, it's got circus too. Sorry, I actually know where that is. Do you? Yeah. For some reason, I think of the ice cream Sunday at Dairy Queen. I was like, If you go out to Saddleback, you, you know, they've got a. I know the reason for that too. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's called a hurricane. <laughs> yeah. That is a replacement for a church in my city. Oh, is it? Yes, sir. So th this is a product called Sprung Buildings, yeah. and um, and they're 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 a reasonable. Um, Facsimile of a building. Um, most people think they're getting cheaper. It still costs you about 70% of new construction costs to build one of these, and then 10 years that skins out of warranty. So now you're faced with doing other stuff. To me, it's transitional because I know yes. the history yeah. of it. Yeah. But also, yeah. to me, it says, hey, we got a road show. Mm -hmm. you know, it's movable. Mm -hmm. it's not, there's no permanency to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for some people, they look at it and they say, oh, you're. you're maybe not going to be here forever. You're temporary. You're, you know, that kind of thing. Sa same thing happens when you move into a shopping center. People are, many times will sit on the sidelines watching to see do you really grow up and become a real church or not. We call it storefronts. Storefronts, yeah. yep. How about this? Postcard. <laughs> Thomas Kincaid? Yeah. Yeah. That's my first thought, resort. So I don't know if anyone's familiar with um, uh, Mariner's Church. It's where Eric Geiger went to be uh, the lead pastor. This is on their campus. It's out in Huntington Beach, California. Uh, they have 50 acres that's worth about two gazillion dollars uh, there in LA. Well, they have a 4,000 seat black box. Do you know what I mean by a black box? I mean, no windows, you know, very industrial kind of thing that they worship in. What, what, when they started polling their community, most of the people in the community come from a liturgical background, Catholic, Episcopal, Lutheran, and the black box did not say church. So they needed a wedding chapel so that they weren't firing up the air conditioning in a 4,000 seat room for a wedding. So they built about a 350 seat wedding chapel that also is open 24 seven with prayer stations like you would find in a liturgical church with a candle lighting area and a you know parchment scroll to put in the, the wailing wall. It's open 24-7. Put it out near the front of their building, front of their property, so that the people coming in their community will say, oh, yeah, that's a church. 
That's a church. So they were, they were using the building not just for functional, but to also communicate a story. Last picture. Industrial. Okay, so this church is in Greenville, South Carolina. Where? That's my hometown. Um, is it Hunter? This building is called the hangar. It's a youth building. And you can't hardly see it, but there's an airplane suspended from it in here. Again, the idea of an airplane hangar. And uh, you're on a journey. You know, So they were trying to communicate a story to the community and to the families that were coming with their youth of a spiritual journey and you know, join us and let's take off together kind of thing. So all facilities communicate a story. The question is, is it congruent with who you are? Does the building from the outside communicate who you are on the inside? Or is it a night and day, total paradigm shift? This particularly is an important factor for churches that have an aging building, but are doing ministry in a more relevant way on the inside, because people in the community drive by and it's like, nah, that's, that's, that's my father's Oldsmobile over there. You know, it's not, not for me. So who you are, who you think you are, which is different than who you are. So we, we do a fair amount of Sunday work. Uh, we're not like Chick-fil-A. Um, and we... So we'll do kind of um, fresh eyes, secret worshiper thing. So I love it when a church says, yeah, we're a friendly church. You're going to love coming to our church on Sunday morning. Then I show up. I don't get a bulletin. Nobody greets me. I'm sitting in the pew and they do fellowship time and no one comes over and shakes my hand. What they mean is we're friendly with each other. And so who you think you are is different than who you are. The third one is what you believe, your vision and mission. Your building should reflect what you believe. So if, if you're big in social justice or mercy ministries or um, feeding the hungry and you put in Italian marble in your foyer, your building's not congruent with your vision and mission. It's, going, it's got to match all of that. And then who are you trying to reach? It's got to be congruent with who you're trying to reach. So I like to use the term target market. Um, I enjoy um, having tomatoes thrown at me. So sometimes when I say target market, people are like, that's a secular term. And, and what I mean by target market isn't an exclusivity type thing. It's where we spend our resources and our time. And every church has a target, whether they know it or not. I visit a church... And in the first three or four minutes of uh, the, the prelude, I can tell you who your target is. If it's a Bach fugue, you have a certain target. If it's a Fanny Crosby hymn, you've got a target. If it's Led Zeppelin, you've got a different target market. None right or wrong, but you have a target. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't want those outside of your target. And target doesn't always have to be demographic-based. Um, target could be we we want to focus on families with small kids so you're not talking age group you're talking about a segment of the market and I love it when a church says yeah our target market is um, families with small kids and I go visit their their children's wings that have concrete block walls 
window air conditioning unit, stains on the floor, and I'm no, that's not your that's not your target at all. You think it's your target. But going back to some of Larry Burkett and Dave Ramsey's, if you want to know what's important to you, look at your checking account. Same thing applies for your target market. Where do you spend the majority of your resources and time? Where are you focusing on that? The next is your building needs to be congruent with your community. So that first building I showed was a church planter's building. Again, it, it serves a purpose. But what ends up happening with many church planters is they get enough money to buy land. And so then they do the demographic study, they buy land in the most expensive part of town, the fastest growing part of town. Now they're out of money and they need to build a building. And so they put in a more austere looking building. Well, they've not given any consideration. If you bought in an expensive growing part of town, the people that own half a million dollar to a million dollar homes, are they going to come to your metal building on Sunday? If anything, they're probably mad at you because now you've degraded values in their community. So again, you use the word opulent. This is nothing about being opulent. It's about being congruent and, and being a, a, a good citizen with those that we're trying to rub shoulders with it as well. So I strongly believe that we have to look at it from a contextual standpoint. The church I attend in Charlotte, we have a target market that is predominantly singles, 30s and whatnot, of which I do not fall into that category, so they allow me to come still. Uh, I think they appreciate the tithe, because uh, the younger ones maybe aren't giving as much. Um, but you come to our worship, and it's flip-flops and shorts and earplugs at the door, and there's enough bass to make your pants move, you know, kind of thing. But that's contextual to who they're trying to, to reach. If I go to New York City, and I go to Redeemer, where Tim Keller is at, they've got coats and ties, string quartets on the platform, because they're trying to reach a Wall Street banker type. Again, it's what's contextual to, to what you're trying to do. So. I strongly suggest the first thing you've got to do is who's God called you to be? You don't need to be First Baptist Woodstock. You don't have to be North Point. You don't have to be anybody else. You need to be the very best of who God called you to be. So there's nothing wrong with learning from other churches, but the minute we start comparing ourselves to other churches, we are going down a very, very slippery slope. Or the minute we try to do it exactly like another church, it's going to fail. You don't have the same leader that they do. You don't have the same resources maybe that that church does. So to think that we can just um, do exactly what another church is doing, again, your DNA is different than their DNA. So don't try to force it in there. Be contextual with who your target is. Again, I'm not saying keep up with the Joneses and I'm not saying water down the gospel. Uh, I'm a firm believer that the gospel never changes. How we deliver it, our means and methods, just like the cell phones in the last 30 years have changed, have to change. Winston Churchill made the statement that we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us. So almost every church I work with is doing church the way their building tells them to do church. We have X number of seats, we have circulation here, we've got restrooms here. I do church this way. So we try to help churches think outside of their current paradigm, which is hard. Um, 
So one of the things that, that we'll ask a church, and I'm going to ask each of you, um, is if you were to describe your church facility as a vehicle, what would it be? And it can be an actual vehicle or a make-believe one or whatnot, but what, how would you describe your church facility as a vehicle? Anybody? A crossover? And what, what would make it a crossover? Uh, some of the traditional elements of what you would say, mm -hmm. like a first, but then some of the newer buildings are modern and equipped and decorated to mm -hmm. meet the needs of the younger generation. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. I'd say a Mercedes Sprinter van. Okay. In that on the outside, we blend into our community. We live in a very posh area, resort area. But on the inside, it's very functional. A lot of big rooms that are transitioned throughout the week. Chairs move constantly. Tables move constantly. So it could be large group. It could be small groups. There's just a lot of function within the building itself. But we're limited with our space, which affects what we do. Okay. Anyone else? Picture ever. Okay. It's an old facility built right after World War II. Got a new gym, 10-year-old family life center. But a lot of builder generation, they didn't want to spend a dime until that building was paid off. Mm -hmm. And so now we've got a lot of deferred maintenance and a lot of... Uh, the, the outside is starting to look good, but the inside still has paneling from the 60s and some of the old Sunday school rooms and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. So, so you, nice. you basically have that, that Ford station wagon with the wood paneling on yeah. the outside. It was great in its day and a lot of people had it, but it doesn't really fit yeah. what people are driving today. Ours is a compact. Okay. We sit on one acre. Cozy. But we utilize all the space. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we share our space. We have across the street a private Christian school. So we work with them. They use our sanctuary for their um, chapels. Mm -hmm. They use our classrooms for prayer groups. They use our fellowship hall for meetings they need or lunches they need. So we have a continuous going. So it's a compact that's well used. We can back. 20 clowns into it. So you've got a Prius. Okay, good. Anyone else? So let me, does anybody attend First Baptist Jonesboro? Okay, good. So you, for the last 24 hours or so, have walked up and down these hallways. What, what story does this building tell you? Growth. Growth? Because I, I know it from, from when I'm back. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? This across me is a historical church that's taking serious steps to modernize. Mm -hmm. My first thought when I came up the stairs is this church is schizophrenic. Because you've got very contemporary, modern, updated carpet to something that feels like it's 30 years old or 50 years old or whatever. And it just felt incongruent with itself. So there's almost like a split personality on that part of the building versus this. And when you go across the street, it's a, it's a whole other thing as well. And so that just was 
it's kind of odd. Again, first time guest, first time I've been in this building, I've been in that one, the first time in this building. That was my, some of my first thoughts. And we have to remember that as guests come, they're going to be looking at those kind of things as well. You know, imagine someone that works in Midtown. Well, they're used to really nice office buildings and nice restaurants, and then they come to your church, are they going to have the same experience as what, what they had elsewhere? So let me, let me use another scripture analysis on, on why it's not just can we make our buildings pretty. This isn't about making pretty buildings. This is about having the right tool to accomplish what God has called you to do. So let's go to the uh, John 4 passage, Woman at the Well. She did not wake up and say, I'm going to go meet Jesus today. She woke up to do what? And how many days a week did she have to get water? Seven days a week. So she was doing an everyday task. We all remember her experience with Christ, and, and we've all heard more sermons than probably we need on that. And then what was the next thing she did? She went and told her family about it. But do we, do we remember what happened after that? She brought him back to the well. She didn't load up the family station wagon and take them to the church. She brought them back to the well. So how do we create well experiences on our campuses and not just a temple experience? Uh, it's, it's what I refer to as uh, well digging versus temple building. Now, we need large space to meet in, but are there other ways that we can utilize our facilities to be a well to our community, to give them an opportunity to come on campus? We've got a project that I worked on in um, Houston um, they, they were moving from a downtown location out in the burbs a little bit. And we asked them, okay, what are some things that are congruent with your community and your body of believers and the community around you? They said, well, a lot of hunters and fishers. Okay? So we designed the building to look like a fishing lodge. I mean, it's got some really cool angles and all sorts of stuff and you know, natural wood material. But then in addition, they came up with the great idea, let's put a pond out front and stock it with fish and open it up to the public. That idea, that 35-year-old man with three kids will likely come and fish long before he steps into the church. So how do we get them on the campus and how do we use that as a missions field? How do we properly staff the fishing hole with, with our own missionaries to, to do life with them. Um, you know, just, just little things like that. Um, yes? Last, in the last week or so, this is over in England, I don't know if you saw the story, but it was like this historical abbey, a really historical church, and they were trying to think of something to do with bring people in. And they took this interior part of life, and they turned it into a nine-hole mini-golf course. <laughs> and it was kind of the part a little closer to the sanctuary than you think, and you know, this started a whole discussion on whether or not that was appropriate. And you know, they interviewed different people, and you know, it's, it's good. I can't do a British accent, but it's good to be out of the rain, and you know, it's not oh, something like that. How what do you think about something like that? But is that you know, I talked a little bit about this. I was trying to feel about that. There, there's a huge trend, I shouldn't say huge, there is a growing trend of churches that have substantial. Um, property value in repurposing their property for something that connects sacred and secular. 
Um, we have a project in Charlotte that we're managing that uh, this was a, a United Methodist Church on seven acres with 40,000 square feet. They had $3 million of deferred maintenance with an annual budget of 900,000 a year. How do you ever get caught up? You don't. And um, in addition, they, they polled their community and people that lived in real high-end apartments across the street didn't even know there was a church across the street. They become irrelevant and invisible, even though they've been there 50 years and had an iconic uh, architecture. Um, but they were they felt very called to their community. Um, so we've actually helped them develop all seven acres into a mixed-use development with the help of a development partner, where we're putting in 750,000 square feet of, of facilities now. Uh, 12 stories of apartments, retail on the first floor, a hotel, and the church will be in the middle of this new village where you can do live, work, play, live, work, worship, if you will. And so we're seeing more of that kind of thing happening where the church is realizing we can take property that we have and roll it into something else and utilize all of that. Um, this church is going to build on the one acre that they retained. Uh, we've got an agreement for shared parking in the parking deck that has 1,100 parking spaces, so not a problem with parking on Sunday morning. Um, but it's just we're finding more creative ways. I'm, I'm currently working with um, a church in Buckhead that's in the same situation. They've grown themselves down to, I think, 60 people. They're sitting on 12 and a half acres in Buckhead. Does anybody want to even guess what that's worth? It's like $100 million is what it's worth. And, and they've got 60 people. So they're trying to think, okay, how do we continue to be a church without being a property management company? And how do we do something? I have a client in Charlotte that uh, is downtown Charlotte, and they told me they spend 70% of their budget on maintaining the building. So how many of you spend at least 50% on staff? Probably most of you. So if you're spending 70% on the building and 50% on staff, you're spending 120% just on that, and you haven't even reached missions or ministry yet. So at what point do you become a church that is really a property management company that meets on Sunday versus being a church that's fulfilling the gospel? These are things that, that constantly keep me up at night. Mm -hmm. Yes? Can I ask you something? Yes. I want to go back to this First Baptist illustration that you, you used because to me this, this is real, this happens, where you've got a campus where there's been a traditional building and then they built this building and they built that building and, and, and sometimes it seems like there's no rhyme or reason to that. It may be code issues where they can't connect them or whatever. Um, you know, and, and then you've got all these different looking kind of buildings. What is your suggestion there to a church like this? Because we've got that. I've got Hebrew Church who had that campus mm -hmm. everywhere. They built a gigantic roof cover just so people could walk back and forth between the buildings. Mm -hmm. But that cost a ton of money. Not everybody can do that. Yeah. Uh, do you do that or do you tear down and rebuild or, or what, what would you say there? Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of the tear down and rebuild um, unless, it's, unless there's no other way to do it. To me, that's always a last resort. Um, some of the things that, that we think can't be done, actually can be done if we spend a little bit of money. For for example, fire codes, if we don't, we can't connect these buildings because they're different fire rates. Well, if you sprinkle the buildings, you don't have that problem anymore. 
So you, you spend the dollars to sprinkle the building, which will reduce your insurance cost. And now you can do whatever you want as far as you know certain size space and whatnot. Um, how many of you have a sanctuary that seats over 300 people? Um, how many of you have a worship space that's bigger than 2,100 square feet and uses chairs? Okay. How many of those have a fire sprinkler system in them? Under Georgia code, you're out of compliance. So if you do any major renovation to that building, you're going to have to bring that up to code. Because the way they, they evaluate codes now for occupancy load, if you have, for every, um, they'll take the square footage of the inside of your room, divided by seven square feet per person, and that's how many people you can put in the room. If you're using chairs. If you're using pews, it's 18 inches per person. Yeah, right. I don't fit in 18 inches. To give you perspective, the middle seat of an airplane is 19 inches. So imagine being really cozy with your neighbors at church. It's just not gonna happen. Um, and so, you know, if, if you have a room that you're using chairs and it's more than 2,100 square feet, it should be sprinkled. Now, you're grandfathered, so it's, it's not like you're doing anything illegal. But the minute you go do major stuff and you have to pull a building permit, you, you may be subjected to having to do some additional upgrades. Same with ADAs and stuff. Box. Pardon? You open Pandora's box. Exactly. You've opened Pandora's box because now I have to upgrade my restrooms for handicap accessibility. I've got to make sure that I have handicap access <coughs> to the platform um, and to the building itself and on and on and on it can go. But I think there's some things that you could do like fire sprinkler that would help without having to do something you know, astronomical. Other things are, are actually fairly simple, um, and everything's easy if they have enough money, just, just so we're clear. But um, painting brick is a way to make the whole campus seem monolithic. Because if you've got four or five buildings and they were all built in different centuries, or different decades at least, then you've got different colored brick. Even if you all have red brick, you have five different shades of red. Well, you paint it all an off-white or a gray, and now all of a sudden the campus looks, you know, more con congruent, if you were. Um, Bethlehem, there in Winder, right. where they, they first engaged me to, to work with them in 2009, 2010. They were running about 700, 800 people. They had a 400-seat sanctuary at the time. Across the, the little grass courtyard, they had a another octagon room that was their fellowship hall. And they asked me, you know, man, we got to build more, more sanctuary space. We need more sanctuary space. And I said, no, you don't. I said, you need to convert that fellowship hall that's underused into a second worship venue and run them simulcast at the exact same time. So they did it where the platforms look exactly the same and Jason would go back and forth so you didn't know where he was gonna preach live from and then the other one's on video. Live music, but then you have an alternating uh, worship. The other thing I told them to do is you need to paint your brick. They had a 1980s mauve brick. Well, if you live in Winder, you're probably driving an F-250, which means you don't go to a pink church. Okay, so I said masculine up the building to make it attractive to the guys that are driving the F-250s. Because if you're gonna attract a 35, 36 year old male, 
he'll bring his wife and kids versus trying to attract the wife and him have, she has to drag them to church. So there's nothing wrong with putting bait on a hook. Okay? And our, our buildings will allow us to do some of that. Think, think of another scenario. Let's say that you're driving in your town and there's two brand new restaurants that have popped up. And you drive by the first one and there's eh, half the parking lot's full at lunchtime. You don't see anybody outside, nothing really going on. You may say, yeah, I probably don't need to come back here. You drive by the next one and the parking lot's full and there's umbrella tables out front with a bunch of people sitting around tables and there's a little playground with people, little people playing on it. You may not stop then, but in the back of your mind, you're like, okay, I need to come back and check that place out. Same thing with our church campuses. People will make an impression as they're driving by. You all proved it to me that you can make a pretty quick judgment on a building. Same thing's going to happen with our church buildings. So kind of a, a final thing is you're going back home. It's just looking at your facilities. What story are they communicating? Are they communicating a we care about our people? I used to fly US Air, being in Charlotte, it was a hub, US Scare, I'm sorry. Um, and in 2008, I converted to Delta. Even though I have to fly through Hotlanta 90% of the time. Um, the reason I switched is my wife and I got on a plane uh, to go on vacation. And as we got on the plane, there was duct tape on the carpet. Seats were tattered. They had the 1950 tube type TVs that fold down from the, the ceilings. And the flight attendants were just miserable people. They, they were just unhappy people. And I told my wife, if that's what they want the paying public to see, what's going on underneath of this thing that I can't see? I'm not willing to take the risk. Well, first time guests to your church are gonna see some of the same things. If you've got duct tape on the floor and stained ceiling tiles and walls banged up and lights without light bulbs in it and stuff, if they can't take care of the building, how are they gonna take care of my family? How are they gonna take care of me? So again, this has nothing to do with being opulent. This is about being intentional and properly planning our buildings and then maintaining them. So as you go home, walk through your building. Take your staff and pretend you're in a car. Start at the corner, wherever the corner is, and pretend like you're driving up to your building. It's amazing what you will see for the first time when you actually do that. I did this with one church and we went out and did that and somebody said, there's 15 doors. I wouldn't know where to go as a first-time guest. So you start seeing things that you otherwise wouldn't see. If you pull into a parking lot with grass growing in the parking lot and the lines all faded, what do you think? You think, oh, they're not taking very good care of this place. Just things to consider. Any other questions before I let you go uh, almost 25 minutes early? I'm here all week to try the veal. So what churches, especially rural churches, that, um, that have a lot of these facility upgrades and these, I mean, what, what do you recommend is the first thing they address as far as you know, those kind of things that needed to take care of in the building versus kind of the exterior and how the uh, community sees them? Mm -hmm. Is there kind of an order on uh, there's somewhat of an order and it can be taken in and out of order. Uh, the very first thing though is to come to realization is who's God called you to be. 
If you can't define that, I don't care what kind of building you have. This is pretty irrelevant to me. Um, you know, go buy a tent, go run a shopping center. If you can't define who you are and why you even exist. Has anybody read the book, Start With Why? It's a secular book written by Simon Sinek. His premise is that most organizations know what they do and how they do it, but they don't know why they do it. And so we, we as a company, we did away with our vision statement. We came up with a why statement to help us understand why we exist. And if a church tells me, well, we exist because we love people and love God. Well, congratulations, you're a church. And there's 350,000 of you in, in America. But why does your church exist? What has God called you specifically to do? If you can't define that, then I wouldn't worry about what the building looks like or feels like. Because first-time guests coming in will sense that you don't know why you're there. You're just going through the motions. After that, I would suggest that you start to address any deferred maintenance that you have. Because deferred maintenance, left deferred, becomes catastrophic over time. To the point that I'm working with churches right now that are shutting down portions of the building, totally closing down their buildings. The, the church I mentioned in Charlotte where we, where we bulldozed it, the Sunday they voted to sell the property, there was an 80-year-old woman that went to the women's restroom and the door wouldn't re-unlock for her. Mm. And she had to crawl on the floor out of this toilet stall to get out. That's not what we want our guests to experience. Those are the type of things that we're seeing as being somewhat of an epidemic of aging churches that people haven't taken care of. So first thing is, I'd address my, I'd address that first. Then I start thinking about, is the interior space helping us do ministry, or is it hindering us from doing ministry the way we want to do ministry? And consider what are the things that would make it more congruent with how we want to do ministry going forward. Um, we, we joked a little bit yesterday about the 1955 Sunday School Board's design of the big room and the little six by six or eight by eight rooms, you know, all around it. Where most churches now, if they have those, those are Christmas storage and Easter storage rooms. You know, they're not being used, and so they think they don't have enough square footage. Where actually they do. It's just all being used wrong. Um, one of our clients is First Baptist Tupelo. They called us up and said, "Hey, we." Um, we're gonna need more square footage. Can you come and help us? So I got there and I said, no, you don't need any more square footage. You have too much square footage. <laughs> I said, you need to start cleaning out some rooms. You need to start tearing some walls out. And so we're helping them double in capacity by adding only 2,500 square feet of new, which is that they needed it for a, a lobby area. There's lots of ways to, to get the interior to work the way you want or to add color. Paint is one of the best and the cheapest ways to change the appearance of a building on the inside. <coughs> but be careful to think it's a one and done. If you're going to repaint, even if you're a church relying on volunteers, have your deacons, your volunteers, whoever, come in and at least once a month touch up the paint. So get a paint that's easily touched up. But touch it up regularly. Make it look fresh and new on a consistent basis. When we work with a church that's looking at a long-term facility management plan, we try to help them establish a painting master plan. So I paint this wing, uh, this quarter, this wing, that quarter, this wing, that quarter, so on and so forth, and then I start all over again. A yeah. question. Mm -hmm. When you do something like that, do you also start changing colors so it becomes a new space? 
In, in some cases, yes, particularly in our kids' areas. Yeah. Um, because uh, colors uh, change like we change our pants. You know, it's constantly there's something new that's now the new cool color. And so you want to be able to do that, which is why I'm not a big fan of using wallpaper because wallpaper is too hard to change. I'm a big fan of paint colors and vinyl graphics because vinyl graphics you can peel off the wall without generally damaging it. And you can tell stories. One of the other things when you're going back to your church is walk through your building and pretend that you're by yourself and no one else is there. And as you walk through it, does the building on the inside communicate the values of that church? Does it communicate a story that even if no one is there to speak a word, you know what they stand for? If baptisms are important to you, do you have pictures of people being baptized around your building? If missions are important, do you have pictures of your missionaries around your building? Um, if kids are important, then what have you done to make the kids' space be more attractional to young families. Um, too often I'll have churches say, well, we don't want consumers in our church, we just want Christ followers. It's hogwash. Okay? We're all consumers even after we become Christ followers. And for those who are shopping you, they're definitely a consumer. So you don't have to keep up with the Joneses, but what are you going to do to make it feel more home? It's probably kind of a loaded question, but how important have measures and security such as it's very established check-in areas and children's area, and even security cameras. How important those? We are dealing with things today that 20 years ago were unthinkable. We didn't worry about it. 20 years ago, when I would work with the church, you know, you could have adults and kids walking up and down the same corridor. Not anymore. You need to sequester, particularly your kids' areas, with security. But your church is going to have to define what is security worth. So it becomes a cultural decision as much as anything else. Um, if you say that all of our children's workers are going to have to uh, go through a background check, and you approach that 25, 30 year veteran that's been doing it you know, forever, and she's great with the kids, but she says, no, I'm not gonna do that. What do you do with her? You've gotta remove her. If you culturally say, this is what we're doing to keep our kids safe, uh, the, the, the likelihood of an active shooter is minuscule. And so we don't need to run out and arm all of our deacons. We don't need to uh, teach people how to shoot people. You know, again, I've, I've got nothing against guns. I've got four or five rifles at home and a handgun. So I've got nothing against guns. But it doesn't do us a lot of good. Guns won't help us when you're looking at the most common security breach is a disgruntled parent and a strange grandparent that's trying to take a child out of your, your daycare. Um, those are the type of things that we need to be prepared for. Mondays are the most common break-ins in churches because that's if you haven't already deposited your offerings, the money's still sitting there and that's the most common day for, for church break-ins. Those type of security measures need to be taken into consideration even more than before you start talking guns and body armor and all the other stuff, even though it's really cool to talk about guns and body armor. Understanding that piece. So security plays a, a huge piece in this. And I can tell you that a first time mama that's 25, 30 years old, if she, if she can see adults that can just pop in and out of that room, they're not gonna feel comfortable with it. 
if, if that nursery is too far away from the sanctuary, they're not going to leave it. You know, so the association of room to room is, is equally important. You don't want your nursery space the furthest way away from the sanctuary. Because if mama needs to get to baby, she wants to get there in a hurry. So the nursery should be as close as possible for her. But security is a huge, huge consideration. And it doesn't detract from the aesthetic. If anything, it will add to the, the comfort level of a, of a first time guest to know, oh, they're taking this serious. They're, they're going to protect my kids, my grandkids, whoever it happens to be. What do you recommend? We're starting a renovation in our church. It's only about eight or ten rooms. Getting out that old paneling from the 60s. Uh, it's going to be mainly a children's space. We're going to resheet rock, new carpet, mm -hmm. uh, tearing it down to the studs. And uh, What do you recommend as far as the children's space uh, colors uh, the the look of it bright bright yep bright colors are cheerful colors they they, they kids attract to it um, graphics is what they would have to graphics mm -hmm. yeah. yeah graphics are a huge thing do you think the themes we're getting we're getting ready to do the same yeah. thing with our children here we're moving them from way away that they're going to be closer to and they've got a whole new and it's actually a newer part of the church but I say newer it's 13 years old but it was you know it, it needs always we've got classrooms and stuff and they will have but it but we're wondering we kept thinking wish we could go to some other churches and see how they do it we're just wondering if you mm -hmm. pick themes to do things to or yeah what do you let me answer that in quite a minute I was going to say that I only worked as a facility manager for private, two private schools. Mm -hmm. One of the things in your situation, cleanability of that space. Yes. Cleanability. Cleanability. Uh, for example, if you go put carpet in there, they go get stained. Use carpet squares. Yeah, yeah, carpet squares. Uh, things like that that can make it easy to maintain. Uh, we had carpet squares, kid uh, chucks on one. I jerk it up, take it out, hose it down. I had a spare to put my back down on top of it. And, and if you're going to do kids' rooms where you may have food, then split the room two thirds, one third. So two thirds carpet, one third being a hard surface, whether it's vinyl or LVT or something like that, so that you run less of a risk of that getting on the carpet. So those are some things. As far as theming, you know, back in the late '90s, all the way up through early 2000s. There was this huge thing about creating all these wacky looking youth space with a car coming halfway out the building and all this stuff. I'm not a big fan of that because it locks you into something. You spend a lot of money and then you're locked in. Uh, Granger Community Church in Granger, Indiana, they bought the rights to Penguins 123. So anybody familiar with Veggie Tales? Penguins 123 was the, was the post-mortem of all that. And so they bought the rights to it. They spent $100,000 to have the rights to mimic everything. So they built all these foam penguins and all this kind of stuff. Two years later, it was out of style. Because that age group that knew it had just moved up, and the next age group moving up doesn't know what it's for. They bought the old thing with them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I'm a big fan of vinyl and wall graphics that are removable using bright colors and maybe multiple colors in a room, and then use digital graphics. So digital graphics can be in the form of you know, large LED TVs, or projection on a wall. 
what they did at Granger is they actually used projection. They would put two or three projectors in a room. And they could make the platform look like a pirate ship one moment, and then it could look like a spaceship for the next age group and whatever, just by switching what feeds going into the projectors. So things like that can be a can be a an easier way to do things. Um, you know, if you're redoing the kids' rooms, one of the other things to consider is adding insulation to the walls, even your interior walls, just for sound attenuation, to give them a, a little more privacy. Make sure uh, your bathrooms are kid. Uh, bathrooms. Okay. They'll, they'll put adult commodes in there. Yeah. yeah. And that's I'm a I'm a I'm an opposite thinker on that. Uh, and there's if you isolate that space, and like in ours we have in between the two rooms, uh, cut out so that that's a bathroom mm -hmm. shared both sides. Yep. And that's what we have in there. Yeah. And a lot of churches do that. I'm not a fan. But in the, let me give you the rationale. Number one is. Well, there's three reasons. The water spot on, on a little kitty toilet is much smaller than a standard toilet, so it's easier to clog. The second reason is the kids don't have that at home. So those learning to use the restroom, have we confused them on what to use? Plus, the kitty toilets are harder for an adult to use. And if you only have one teacher in a room and you've got a restroom, you don't want them going, you know, half a mile down the road to, yeah. to use the restroom. It, it all becomes personal preference, you know, what, what you all want from a standpoint. But I, I'm a big fan of having restrooms in at least certain age group rooms. And then, say for my first grade through fifth grade, I'm a fan of having boys and girls restrooms in a corridor that's in a sequestered area. In a perfect world, I should be able to drop off my children and no adult get to them from age zero to fifth grade. And I should not be able to pick them up unless I've got that sticker or tag or some identifier for them. It just adds a, a whole other level of security. You'd be surprised when we do that in a church that's never had before, how much resistance will be. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Can I ask a question about cameras? Mm -hmm. okay. You're going to put cameras in a children's area, mm -hmm. okay. which makes sense for security reasons. Okay. Um, What are your thoughts on cameras in areas where they're going to be changing diapers or bathrooms? Yeah. I mean, I would never in bathrooms. Do that never in bathrooms because that opens yourself up to yeah. other things. Yep. But at the same time, then there's places that are blocked off that, where there's no cameras where things could happen. Yep. So, how do you position the cameras in such a way that you're guarding yourself the best you can without any kind of so let's say your yeah your public restrooms, those in the corridor. I always recommend putting a camera, the entrance in and out, so you can see who went in and out and the time stamping of when they came back out and you know things like that. Yeah. Did they drag somebody into the restroom with them, kind of thing. So focusing on that's a, a bigger deal. Um, I would have someone walk my building and say, okay, where are the potential hiding places or dark places and add cameras there or add light? Yeah. One of the best things you can do on the outside of your campus is add more light. Shine on it. Scripture says that evil doesn't like the light. So make it bright. Add, add more light to your parking lot. All of those kind of things can help from a security standpoint. Especially motion detecting light because you have a dark, like we have a drive-through, 
we're about to install a motion to take the black and that. Mm -hmm. It's an easy place for someone to park a car to hide, but they fill in there. Also, they're lit up. Right. Excuse me. Mm -hmm. I'm also a big fan on motion sensors in restrooms. Yeah, that's up my house. Because what's the most common room that the life, light is left on? It's a bathroom because there's no windows, and so you don't know it if you're on the outside of the building. So I'm a big fan of putting motion sensors. And what else should be tied to a motion sensor in a bathroom? The fan. That way they come on and off, you know, together instead of the fan running all day, all night, and you know, burning itself out over a period of time. If you put them in restrooms, though, be cognizant of the length of time certain people might need to use a restroom yes. and set the timer. Especially as old people. Yeah. Um, yeah. You don't want grandma going into the restroom and, and the light go off. Or worse, well, what's worse is most of the motion sensors will either be at the light switch yeah. or maybe your first light yeah. and you're in a stall and you cannot you cannot reactivate it. So, good fun questions. Okay. Well, I'm going to hang around a little bit. There's literature on the back table. Um, feel free if you want this presentation, uh, if you can give me your email or a business card or something, I'll be happy to email it to you. Okay?